And now our discussion continues. I'm actually surprised they didn't do more marketing. In fact, if this were for television, I'm sure that this would have started off with Grandfather and Susan sitting down at the breakfast table and her having her bowl of sugar puffs. (laughs) By the way, sugar, sugar puffs, Ah, awful cereal. (laughs) Well, it was was, uh, owned by Quaker Oats, and that, of course, is the... The uh, British version is Sugar Puffs, so I think that the American version was Sugar Smacks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just looked it up. It was the Bendy's Toy Factory. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, uh, thoughts. Uh, how entertaining was this for you? And uh, Because I'd never seen this, at, because these absolutely were not played on American television I would have seen this because when TV Guide came out, that's what I did when I was a kid, I looked for movies like this and said by God I'm going to be there to watch that. Mm-hmm. I never saw this, it was never on American TV so how do you think it worked out Doctor Who uh, on this big screen well I liked it and the one thing that I wanted to say earlier was comparing H.G. Wells to Doctor Who, they tried to make this more realistic. And one thing that bothered me was in the first movie, it was worse. In the second movie, they got better. The interior of the TARDIS was a mess in the first movie. They tried to actually make it look like an old man made it. But, of course, you had the TV show with this awesome set, and then you go to this mess of junk in a room for the first movie. (laughs) So I I think it was cool that they tried to modernize it, and they tried to make it look all new, and they tried to make it look more realistic with that aspect. But It was literally the garden shed. As far as updating, they updated the Daleks to a certain extent. Uh, it wasn't quite so obvious that it was a toilet plunger coming <laughs> out. Um, but they did, you know, it was still ended up being dopey, even though they had more money. Is They had this claw thing come out, and there they are manipulating controls on their spaceship that they clearly cannot manipulate at all with those claws. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe so, that. So, Toppy, you noticed this, the um, toilet plunger. Something that you may not have noticed are the the eye stalk, not the eye stalk, but the blinking lights, the dome lights on the Daleks. Something that you won't be able to unsee. Um, do you know how we have the red solo cups here in the United States? Yeah. yeah. The dome lights for the Daleks are actually acrylic drinking glasses <laughs> on their dome lights. So if you look at the tops of the Daleks, and you tilt your head just right, they're very obviously drinking cups. Well, weren't they also at one point a jelly jar? Well, that's I call them jelly jars because they look like our canning jars, oh. but they're actually 1960s acrylic tumblers. <laughs> of course, the trouble is, um, they, they, if you looked at the cartoon series uh, it, in, in the kids' comics of the time, the Daleks could float because I think that was always 
they were always a lot more advanced in the comic because you could draw that, but it was very difficult to do it realistically. And it took until 1988 for a Dalek to float upstairs. Um, and, and that was a big, I remember that was sort of towards the end of the original run. I remember sort of going to school the next day and, and sort of with a massive grin on my face because Daleks can go upstairs now. And of course, in the new series, they've always floated. So a little bit more that technology couldn't couldn't catch up with the Daleks rather than... Um, well, that, one, yeah. one thing they did super well in the movie, <clears throat> the gliding of the Daleks is perfect. You never sense that... Look, I, I don't know how they did the Daleks. I'm assuming there were people in there. But how yeah. did they get them to glide so smoothly? And there's actually some intricate choreography with those robots. But when they move, it looks very artificial. It looks like... It doesn't seem like there's people pushing or pulling or whatever they did it really well hubby and i were discussing that as we watched it and we just thought to ourselves about the poor people who were inside those contraptions there were scenes on the sets where you had elevated levels with no railings and these people (laughs) just conveniently navigated and if you had one foot astray you were falling over now, I'm assuming there were people in there, but do we know? Do we know for a fact? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did they move? How did they make these things glide so smoothly? It was like a pedal bike, wasn't it? Okay, that makes sense, I guess. Because yeah. if someone's shuffling on their feet, it wouldn't have looked like that. Mm-hmm. So I, it's got to be something like wheels or something. I know. Maybe they they just use chairs with wheels on it, and they're sitting in there on chairs, like desk chairs with wheels. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of the Daleks themselves, I know some of the um, analysis of the the actual props behind them is uh, there were differences between the ones used on the TV series and the ones made for these two movies. In fact, Hubby can speak to this. I'll let you talk about it. But, um, you know, tracking down which one was in which uh, production. But basically, they decided that the Daleks uh, having flamethrowers would be too violent for theater, so they had to make the interior of the Daleks big enough to have basically a fire extinguisher. Well, they were pretty much the same casings. A company called Shawcroft actually made them. Um, they added more height with the lower bumper. I mean, they were, I don't know the whole story behind it, but it is fascinating to me that. A lot of these props that were made, I think there was 18 to 19 of them for this movie, um, they, they continued on with the series. Just like with what Shayetti said with the one going up and down the stairs. There were movie Daleks in that Remembrance of the Daleks episode. There are people that have watched all of these episodes with them looked at how the balls are on the skirts and where everything is on the different parts of them and have literally been able to number them and track them throughout the entire run of the show. 
which has always fascinated me that people have watched episodes and could see paint chips or dents or dings carry through the entire length up until the 80s. That's the kind of information that somehow Billy knows. <laughs> I don't know how he knows these things. Well, I mean, but, Doctor uh, Who, we are, we're very lucky with Doctor Who because so much exists, like documentation from the time. You can literally know when each scene was recorded, at what time of day, um, what, what countries bought the show, the, the paperwork still exists which is why people can still write books and still uncover new details whereas like when i've talked to you Toppy, about dark shadows i've just asked quite simple questions not not to you but just generally i like you know like why is one why, why does one episode of dark shadows mean uh, it's missing if it was doctor who we'd know there would be uh, there would be explanations for why that one episode but i, I don't I've never seen some of those questions I have about some. So some shows just don't have as much paperwork, much so much information available. Um, and that's some Doctor Who, we're very lucky. Uh, um, before I forget, there is a documentary uh, called Dal- Dalek Mania that pretty much covers the making of, I think, both movies. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's part of some of the releases um you know that they've made they put that documentary anybody seen it dalek mania oh shayeti is presenting his copies well it's probably i I imagine that dalek mania might be on this set but i i am not sure i'm not sure because this is quite an old set now um but uh, Apparently, this movie has been restored. I doubt the version I saw was a restored version. I rented it on um, YouTube, uh, and I, I, I just I can't believe that was the restored version. Anybody get to see the restored version? No, yeah, didn't get to see it. The version that we had was somewhere under 720p, like on our big screen. It was pixelated. On a regular TV, it probably would have looked better, but it was it was definitely not the restored version that we watched. Yeah, it must look pretty good. I should try restored version. Uh, one of the- we were actually looking at purchasing it. One of the things that Shayeti has over us is in the UK, it's more readily available. For us, it's more boutique shops or the Amazon where the shipping is outrageous on some items. So, unfortunately, I haven't been able to scour as much DVD or Blu-ray footage of Doctor Who material. Out of over 25 to 2,800 discs that we own, I only own three Doctor Who discs. (laughs) One of them being Remembrance of the Daleks, which is one of my favorite episodes which finally the freaking Dalek goes up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you um, know, one of the things that uh, Doctor Who fans get to enjoy is the fact that it often pokes fun at itself. And just as Shayeti was saying, you know, the, the Daleks haven't always been able to be so mobile. They can go upstairs later on. Now, they actually, in more recent years, made fun of this in, I believe, a Peter Capaldi episode because they were being pursued by the Daleks. And that was the trope was that, oh, they can't go upstairs. And then they look, turned and looked and they were floating. It's like, oh, they can run. <laughs> um, I, um, I, 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 I'm 
I'm not not embarrassed to admit that I think I probably cried when the Daleks went up the stairs. Not because I was scared or, or, or sad, but just because in my little fan heart, I I knew that I, I could go to school next day and go. Yeah, this is this is a proud moment as a Doctor Who fan, particularly when it wasn't at its most popular at the, uh, by by that stage. Gr- Grandma got her elevator. <laughs> I, I got a question for everybody. Uh, as far as this this specific movie, there was a reason the Daleks came to Earth. Can anybody tell me, in the confusing way this plot blundered along? <laughs> Why were the Daleks? Why were they at Earth? What was their intention? What was their ultimate goal? Anybody they know? To, they wanted to turn Earth into a giant taxi car. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway. No, that's right. They wanted to extract the Earth's core so that they could take the planet with them to their own planet. And then I guess they just wanted Earth close at home to them. And then they were going to well, exploit their, Earth's. Uh, their planet wasn't very. It wasn't very, um, very nice by that stage either. So. <laughs> okay, but anyways, I thought when I when they finally, you know, had that moment, that comic books and movie dramas uh, have, where they have to do the exposition about why we're here, and the Daleks are going around. Yes, we are going to extract the Earth's core. So that we can move the Earth next to our own planet. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I think two of the scenes I remember most when I was a kid, because it kind of taught me that you can't trust people, um, was one when the they go to the house where there's the old two old the old oh. lady and her daughter, <laughs> and the, and they they um, betray them to the Daleks. And I remember that being very shocking to a child when I saw that like. The, you would, they would do that sort of thing, and also when that sort of guy, the one who um, brings f- the food in, he does the same thing and and hands them over to the Tullocks, and and you know that's that's the lesson I got from that film: don't trust anyone. I mean, <laughs> that's something that I was talking with DJ on. <laughs> These humans are god awful. They don't need savings. Let the Daleks wipe them out. They're horrible. Absolutely horrible individuals. There was a part There was a part of me that wanted me to see the the curmudgeons get their just desserts. Yes, they blew up the one garden shed. I, I would have Sadly enjoyed watching their little hut on fire. I'm sorry. It's it's a horrible aspect of me, but I would enjoy it. I would get marshmallows. The Daleks okay? are, are more forgiving of the two ladies than they are the man. They they, they obviously make a distinction between um well, they're, uh, they're sewing outfits for the yes, yes. Now see yeah. I had a slightly different take. I I thought that was an element of realness that I would have liked them to push a little more. And the UK was in a position following World War II where this this kind of thing happened. Uh, I mean, with Nazi occupation in other parts of the world, and you wanted food and you were starving, yeah, you'd do just about anything to get that carrot, an extra potato. Oh, you yeah. would. 
Yeah. But I definitely you, you also got to look at what the Daleks value. Here you have two women in the middle of nowhere sewing clothes for these workers. Yeah. Obviously, the, the Daleks were concerned about the fashion of the workers. It shows with the <laughs> Robomen. Look at how wonderful their outfits are. I think it needs to be explored more with the Daleks, their fashion sense, and how they care about clothing. Because obviously they can't wear any, so, you know. Well, and Paul, I want to say that the Robomen... And that headset gear that they had, that reminds me of some of the nostalgia stuff that I've seen online where they've uh, had, um, you know, record players, turntables that were portable. And it looked like one of those turntables was attached to an earpiece. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do think you're right, Toppy. It it does feel real, but I think to a little person seeing it for the first time, it without knowing any of that history at that stage, it was, it, it was quite, it was very shocking. Um, it even, the beginning of, of the beginning of learning what the world is really like. Yeah. It even, uh, took me by surprise because I was really thinking, Oh, these two sweet ladies, they're trusting. Oh, isn't that nice? And then, you know, they betray him. Uh, I got a question about the, uh, and you guys would know, the, the Daleks themselves, to me, in the movie, especially at the end, they're expressing fear for their own lives. Uh, so they're a robot, but they're an android. I, oh, they there fear is, for their own existence. There is. Because, there is. Does there that is carry on? Like, there is a creature. Yeah, it, it does. And there, is, there are creatures. They aren't 100% um, robotic. They are, there oh. are things inside. But you don't, you don't see them in in certainly not in that film but uh, yeah there are there are little creatures inside that are what's left of creatures um oh. and, and and the daleks are just their metal sort of um travel machines uh, okay i didn't know that that ex- certainly explains because i was thinking well these are robots they would not be panicking they're <laughs> they're kind of in layman's terms a um an environment suit so there's mm. they're surviving within side of this uh, mechanical husk, which is an interesting point that the Dar- the Daleks later on basically think they are the most supreme being. But in the first movie and originally, they wanted to get drugs so they can get out of their casings in the first movie. So it kind of shows them wanting to be more human in the beginning, very uh-huh. lightly. And then later on, they enjoy being their little blobby selves. But it gets really confusing towards the end. And we've mentioned the episode Remembrance of the Daleks, which is one of the last Dalek episodes. Um, There's actually two factions of Daleks. There's fully robotic, and then there are ones with blobs in them. Uh, And, um, of course, the creator of the Daleks, Davros, is a human, well... A, mute, a, a, a deformed human inside a, with a Dalek casing on his lower half um, and um, in Revelation of the Daleks just the one before Remembrance of the Daleks you you sort of see a, a science lab where you can see the person inside um, you can, it's like a, a, a clear transparent Dalek and you can see the person still in mid-transformation um, 
And I this, guess the, the Daleks. Uh, now, now, now I have to ask. I keep hearing <laughs> you guys say Daleks. Oh uh, well, it's a pronunciation thing, but it's spelled okay. D-A-L-E-K. Okay. So what uh, is is that? How people pronounce it, Darlick? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know that. Um, why do you suppose they they have the Darlicks in both of these movies? I mean, I know today, probably even today, the Darlicks are considered Doctor Who's greatest enemy. But in in these two movies, back to back in the sixties. Daleks. They, they were they were the the Beatles of sci-fi. <laughs> they were mass, They were absolutely massive in '63, '64, '65. Um, and they sold toys. Yeah. Gotcha. They in fact they actually used toys <laughs> yeah. in some of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm aware because of what I've read that. Uh, these two movies with Chris, uh, Christopher Lee, these two movies with Peter Cushing are largely ignored and kind of forgotten. Yesterday, I said to Mannion, uh, my friend here, hey, tomorrow night we're doing a Doctor Who movie. And he said, what do you mean a Doctor Who movie? This is a guy that's a huge fan of Doctor Who. He did not know about these two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to ask, why Why do you think these are, are forgotten and kind of, I, like, a lot of fans don't seem to like Peter Cushing in this role. Any thoughts? I don't feel like they're so forgotten with, well, over here for a start, but also my generation, because we, we kind of, you know, they were our, our Saturday morning um sort of summer holiday fodder so um, but uh, yeah I mean there's always that thing particularly also fans who perhaps have only discovered the show since it came back um, and not every fan of the current series has necessarily gone back to the um, to the old old stories but um, uh, yeah I mean I think yeah they probably are forgotten by my mom by more modern fans but yeah certainly my my um, age group they, they were definitely part of of well they, they were some of the mo- most um, accessible Doctor Who as far as repeats were concerned because in the 80s they very rarely repeated old Doctor Who and and it didn't start coming out on on home video until the late 80s so um, you, you know I think you're right <clears throat> because one of the reasons so many American kids became monster kids and sci-fi nerds is because things were repeated on television and these movies were not i mean these never saw if they had been played as much as many other things on tv uh old movies uh it'd probably be entirely different um but there's no nostalgia for those two I, movies simply because they're so unknown. I bet they would have made that third film had they known that Doctor Who was still going to be on TV 60 years later. Um, yeah, for I, sure. I, I, you know, and, uh, it sh- probably- and it should be noted that Peter Cushing actually was uh, no accident to be in these films because he was a, at one point considered to be in the lead on the TV series. Uh, 
Okay, now I don't get what you just said. Did you? Peter Cushing auditioned for the role of Doctor Who on oh, the TV auditioned. series, and oh. Hartnell was actually a little off-put by the fact that Peter Cushing was the face of Doctor Who in the films, because Peter Cushing was also a younger man. Mm. Although he always played older. I think at age 15, Peter Cushing pretty much looks like he does in this movie. <laughs> um, Paul, I got another question. And uh, you, you and I might be the only people who, who will get this. Uh, do you consider these movies a Doctor Who difference in the way that you and I would look at Dark Shadows, the soap, and then look at House of Dark Shadows, the movie? Because for me, there is the soap, and then there's this movie, and they're very, very different. Would you, uh, yeah, can, would you yeah, say can, that these two movies are different in that way from the show on TV? Yeah, I, I, I'd say. So although um, in the Dark Shadows movie, it's, it's a lot darker than, the, the, I guess the, the Doctor Who movies aren't, um, that the, they they're more sort of a technicolor version of what you've seen on TV. So they are, they are definitely different. And it's like a, you know, and you're seeing people who weren't in the TV series playing some characters that were, so it's a bit like seeing an alternate dimension, Doctor Who. Um, but whereas with Dark Shadows, it's like gone from sort of being daytime, relatively scary, but not gory to being quite gory and adult. Um, but uh, I guess it, if they had made the Doctor Who movies, I mean, there's still dead bodies and people getting shot, but there's no blood. Um, but then there was people being shot in, in, in the TV series. I think what what TV was acceptable for kids um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s was probably um, more adult, really, than, than it would be allowed almost even today, sort of thing. Yeah, uh, another thing <clears throat> that I'd like you to talk about uh, briefly, because <laughs> you and I could probably talk about this aspect forever, but this is, I think this is a thing unto the UK itself and its relationship with their Doctor Who. But talk about the fandom early on and the fanzines and the tape scenes. Mm -hmm and how these clubs were made, and how fandom grew. Talk about fandom of Doctor Who in the UK. I, I think um, fandom in, of Doctor Who in the UK sort of begun, I'd say, in the early 70s. I mean, I don't don't know you know, if there were smaller groups, but they, they became more sort of known groups um, in, in the 70s, perhaps around the 10th anniversary in 73. But um, by the time uh, I became... Uh, well, obviously, I've been, been a fan since the late 70s, but I didn't really get involved in the fandom until the later 80s, um, perhaps in the last two seasons. It, so it was on it was on TV still. It just wasn't that popular, and the BBC were trying to find a way to get rid of it, but it wasn't that easy for them because it, they did still have a lot of fans who would sort of protest. And uh, I, I, I um, put an advert in the Doctor Who magazine and got pen pals. I had about 50 pen pals at one point when I was 
sort of in sixth year or towards you know before I went to university in the very late 80s or early 90s uh, a lot of those people became real life friends um, and I started to go to conventions and I went to conventions all the way through the 90s into the noughties haven't been to one so much recently but uh, yeah I used I used to I used to go go to a lot of, of conventions and I have a lot of friends who you know my uh, a lot of the friends who are on my show my podcast are are people I knew back in the 80s or late 80s who were Doctor Who fans and we did we did tape zines or contributed to tape zines which were you know like the the podcast of their day and um, a, f- a friend of mine is currently putting together a book of all of the, the tape zines that existed and, and uh, it was only when I was talking to you Toppy that I realised that actually it, it wasn't so well certainly not you weren't so aware of tape zines I just presumed that every sort of um, franchise that was big ha- ha- would, would have had tape zines but maybe it was a particularly UK thing or perhaps just not um, you know I, we don't know of many American tape zines so it would fit with what you said. It wasn't it, that. <clears throat> but yeah, just uh, explain to the audience what 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 is a tape zine and how did you make them? Just briefly. Well, well, a tape zine would be you would have done articles, perhaps have different people contribute um, different aspects, like they may be talking about a particular story that wasn't popular but which they like. But um, but it, maybe, it's it's audio. Yeah, it's all it's it's like audio. Tape is in yeah. tape cassette. A yeah, on on a on a C ninety or um, C sixty, um, and, um, and you you would sort of maybe send an advert into one of the Doctor Who magazines that were that offered that as a service to promote um, uh, tape scenes. Often done for free. You would you you probably expect people to send you a blank tape um, and the postage. You wouldn't make any money out of it. I mean. Partly because of copyright, you probably would have got into trouble if you had. But uh, uh, it was very amateur, very amateur sort of homegrown thing. But uh, yeah, that fascinates me because it really is a precursor to the podcast. Mm, yeah. It's the whole. I mean, he would. I just think that's absolutely fascinating. And and that Doctor Who. I mean, it wasn't. A, it was just a big deal. It was a big deal. I I mean, I've often said I could never have got into Star Wars in such a big way because, for many, many years, all Star Wars, what all Star Wars was, was three films, and I'm the sort of person who needs a, you know, I I, you know, 1,200 or so episodes of Dark Shadows. Yeah, that's that, plenty to explore there, Um, and same with Doctor Who. Plenty of even if the stories didn't exist, all of the pretty much all the stories were novelised, so you could explore the novels. So. that, so we, you were aware of stories you couldn't necessarily see because you'd read these novels. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm one of those people who I just need, I need there to be a lot of material if I'm going to get really into, into something. Uh, well, that's what I prefer anyway. Uh, yeah, did you, um, Chris, Billy, uh, you, as well as DJ, are both <clears throat> um, big convention guys. And uh, have you ever been to Doctor Who specific conventions? I was only lucky enough to have one. That is where the Shy Yeti is spoiled. <laughs> because we had nothing 
here for Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Well, where I lived, we didn't have that much. If you were in New York City or if you were in Los Angeles, there were bigger Doctor Who conventions. But where I was, there really wasn't. So I didn't have a lot of outlet to go to the conventions in the 80s. You know, it did change a little bit later on, but I didn't have that. But I was fortunate enough to see Colin Baker um, in person, and that was around um, his Dalek episode airing. In fact, they showed us the episode. But something that Shayetti is probably aware of, we were a year or two behind. So we were just beginning the Peter Davidson episodes, and we were shown the Dalek episode with Colin Baker, not knowing what the hell was going on. <laughs> so, you know, we only got one or two conventions where I was, specifically. And we uh, had the Doctor Who tour thing. That was cool, too. I, I, had, I had an American Ben friend around that time who... I think, well, I, I think he had a lot more pocket money than I did because I, I was only, I had a paper round and I could just about scrape by and buy the merchandise that I wanted to. But um, my friend in, in America was sending me a lot of next generation things, which I, I didn't mind next generation and I quite liked Quantum Leap, but I, I didn't have the money to sort of buy things for him, which he couldn't have got hold of. I just didn't have the ready, the ready cash. I feel still feel bad about it 30 years later. The closest we came to having a Doctor Who convention here was a few years back, shortly after we um, abducted Toppy for the first couple of times. We were going to, in fact, all of us on this call meet up on the Mid-Atlantic because, Paul, you had mentioned having family possibly in the South and having an opportunity to be in the area. We were going to go to this convention together. Well, lo and behold, it was an event that was organized independently, and there was a falling out amongst the founders. In fact, it might have even been a spousal relationship that broke up the bank. And I was so disappointed because we were going to have Peter Capaldi, we were going to have the actress that played Amy Pond, and I believe that they might have even had the actress who played, um, oh goodness, Matt Smith's companion that went on to uh, Capaldi. Um Clara. Yes, Clara, there. yes. Who, of course, uh, in hindsight, I found was uh, better in her performance on the the uh you know the docu series uh Victoria. Mm. So um and my last question for all you guys uh is how into the probably thousands or hundreds of uh novelizations do those did you I know you're you know you and Billy like the novelizations of the Star Trek universe and Star Wars. How about Doctor Who, Paul? Any interest in all those novel novelizations? Well, well, I, I, I liked the novelizations of the original thing, the Target novelizations. They're known as, and they were novelizations of of all the stories in the first twenty six years, and then in the early nineties, they they did a series of novels 
but with Virgin Books, and some of the one or two of those stories that later got turned into um, New Who actual TV episodes, but with things changed. And then also there was a um, there's a company called Big Finish who do audio dramas uh, with with original cast members, um, and and I did follow some of those, but there was so many. And again, I mean, I'm not quite as bad as I was when I was doing having to do a paper round, but I, I, I do have money that needs to go to other things. I I I uh, haven't the time to listen to everything that comes out, and I haven't listened to a lot of those sort of things. Um, the novelizations that have come out since the new show has been on. I, I own some of them, but never got around to reading them, so stopped buying them because I just, yeah, there's just there's just too much for me. But uh, um, as long as there's new episodes on TV, that's that's my main thing. But, uh. Billy and DJ, any any interest in the novelizations? I was fortunately enough to get a lot of the novels at bookstores and libraries. In fact, that was some of the only things that I was able to acquire was the novels growing up and being able to read them. Even the DePaul action figures, Mm -hmm. they were wickedly expensive in comic shops where I was. So I really only had, you know, the the first novelizations of the episodes as well as the Marvel Doctor Who comic. Mm. Hmm. Well, uh, DJ, did you have anything to... Yes, um, you know, uh, as, as Paul was just mentioning, uh, the Big Finish audio adventures, um, they're likened to being a, like a radio drama. So they, they take that format. They're, uh, you know, often a story that would be presented like a play and they're recorded. I enjoy the uh, presentation of audiobooks in general, and some of my favorites are autobiographies who are read by the author and of course a lot of those are celebrities the big finish audio adventures are wonderful because they are often read by the actors who originated those roles so um hubby has even told me that during that time when doctor who was off the air which was roughly a decade between sylvester mccoy and christopher eccleston here in western new york we have a school for the blind and he had friends who really were not aware of the fact that the TV show was not being made anymore because their attention was focused on the audio adventures. And to somebody, they they didn't realize that these adventures weren't continuing because they were getting the audio stories. Yeah, my my dad's friend Duffy, he he was blind, but he said that he was. He didn't see, because he had the audio and everything, it was nice to him because he didn't, he wasn't missing the live action. It's kind of bad to say, but my friend Duffy with my dad, he was, he always liked to listen to the audio adventures because it was like the series never ended for him. I mean, yeah, because even though Doctor Who wasn't on the TV for many years, I don't think there was ever a year when something new didn't come out, some new audio, some new novel, some, some, it, it never went away for, um, for, for the fans really, because there was always new things, conventions. And in 1996, of course, there was the, there was, um, the TV movie, which had, um, with Paul McGann as the doctor, which was a pilot for, well, that was with American and Canadian backing as well as UK. And, uh, they made one sort of quite high budget episode 
Um, but it did well in the UK, but it didn't do well enough in the US for them to commission any more because they, they had the money. So then it was another t t almost 10 years after that. Um, but uh, Sylvester McCoy was involved in that. So we did get to see what happened to him you know, six years after he was last seen on UK screens. So <laughs> there was a continuity. I think otherwise most fans would probably have said, Oh well, it's it's a bit like the TV movies, a, a bit like the sorry, a bit like the Peter Cushing movies. They're not quite the same um, d d dimension or whatever. But because Sylvester McCoy was uh, in that American version, uh, and he was seen to regenerate into a new Doctor, then that makes it canon, um, even though it was just one story. Although Paul McGann has returned a number of times in in, in New Who, so and done audios, so he is definitely. Doctor Who, even though he didn't have a very long tenure. But, uh, what, that was something interesting when they aired the Paul McGann special, that short mm -hmm. little clip of him as the Doctor with the new series. When they had him envisioning and talking, DJ wasn't aware, but as Paul McGann's Doctor character was naming his companions and naming everything, it pretty much made all of the audio canon within seconds that he did dj you know was just like what who are these people and i'm like these are people from his companions from the audiobooks he as he's naming them he's instantly making them canon yeah well i, I that's what my friend Mannion yesterday said about doctor who in our conversation about the movies and whether they were canon and and Mannion immediately said oh Oh, 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 anything of Doctor Who anywhere is automatically canon. <laughs> and I I don't know if that's true, but that was his opinion. Not in my opinion. No. <laughs> only, only TV Who is, is canon, I think. <laughs> they, they did include the movies as canon per se because they were referenced as actual movies in the Doctor Who TV series that were made by people that knew of the Doctor. So that the movies do exist in the Doctor Who universe in canon, but they're movies about the Doctor that were made, if that makes <laughs> sense. And, and the stories are remakes of actual stories that we saw that are canon. So right. the stories are canon, but the versions are different, alternative. <laughs> so I was so just... it's like if Ian or somebody went to cash in on his adventures with the doctor, wrote it all down and made it into a movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. So before we, um, you know, talk about what's coming up next, I was just going to say, um, rounding out the discussion on the audio adventures, just an honorable mention, because there could be uh, new fans out there. Alex Kingston, who played the character of River Song, has actually written a book a few years ago. Now, this is not on Big Finish, I don't believe, but uh, she has written a book about the adventures of her character, River Song, in the same format that was presented in the Matt Smith uh, episodes, where she was sort of a, a private eye going off on adventures. And uh, Alex Kingston has also read an audiobook version of that. So um, that's, that's a delightful piece of um, material out there that I'm looking forward to getting my hot little hands on someday. So, well, Of course, one of the most um, popular of the Doctor Who's companions was Sarah Jane Smith, who appeared with Tom Baker and then appeared um, 
met quite a few times on Modern Who, um, but she eventually had uh, her own TV series, which was more aimed at, at sort of a children shown over here, more more the time of day that that children would be watching TV. Um, but before that all happened, before the show even came back, Sarah Jane had her own audio series um, on, which I think was an early big finish. Um, so so it, uh, it, it, it sort of paved the way when the show came back to show that she worked well as a as a, um, a solo character and, and she had had a spin-off back in 1981 um, with with the robot dog canine <laughs> there was a show called canine and company which was sarah jane and canine solving crimes and there was a pilot which is really good fun and it's just a, such a shame they didn't do a, a series of that we we could have had more sarah jane a lot earlier, but uh, yeah. Uh, just question: Was K nine the, the robot dog ever referenced in the newer? Uh, yeah, yes, and, and, and yeah. Um, well, K nine was in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but was also in some of the stories. Uh, was it? I'm sure he was certainly in one of the first time she came back. Um, yeah, he has he has appeared because Sarah Jane was left. Well, there wasn't just one K nine; there was more than one. Um, Sarah was left. Um, with a with a canine, uh, was was sent a canine, and um, so so so, yeah, canine still a sort of thing. Canine had a a spin-off series more recently in the last ten years, I think. I can't remember if that was animated or or live action. I never saw that, but um, yeah, it's no wonder that Jamie Summers eventually got a dog on the Bionic Woman. <laughs> I always thought that uh, the seventies era Doctor Who with Tom Baker and and that's where I saw K nine. I just figured, you know, the success of Star Wars and the, the two droids, R two D two, and that 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 with K nine was sort of their answer to bring in some of that. Yeah, if it if it was, it was very close to the time of it happening because that K nine camp comes in about nineteen seventy seven. So. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, if it it was yeah, a very quick reaction. This is a uh, spirited discussion, rounding us up to the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, and there'll be some episodes this fall with um, returning actors in their originated roles. But uh, before we end the discussion, normally this is the part where we would talk about other things that you might like if you enjoyed this. However, as we are celebrating the spirit of fandom, we're just going to take a round and both of our guests will mention some of their favorite episodes. So if you've never seen Doctor Who and what planet are you living on, what are some episodes that you should probably catch as a newbie fan? Uh, who wants to go first? Shall I? Well, you know what? Let me go first because I have the most trivial um, understanding of all this. And and what you guys say is probably going to mean a whole lot more. So, uh, I, I simply can't pin it down to an episode. As I said before, I loved the, the gestalt of those 70 video ones. I really liked the look. But I did happen to see fractions of some of the newer after the last 10 years. And I don't know how I saw this, but there was an incredibly moving scene that bowled me over. 
that made me say, holy cow, this is not Tom Baker running around anymore. This, this, this new Doctor Who is on a whole different level. And it was the episode where Vincent Van Gogh comes to the future to see people looking at his paintings in a museum. And he's, Van Gogh is so moved by this, and watching Van Gogh be so moved made me cry. It was absolutely astonishing because Van Gogh was pretty messed up in the head, and for him to, to, to I mean, if you think, like, if this could really happen, how wonderful it would have been if he could have gone to the future to see how many people are moved by his paintings because he didn't believe at the time. Anyways, I don't know how many moments are that awesome in this new series, but my God, that scene was awesome. Yeah, that was a Matt Smith episode, and uh, Amy Pond, his companion, took a, a liking to Van Gogh, and it was sort of part of her idea to show the artist how his work would be appreciated. But yeah, that's that's a, a very good entry. And Billy or Paul, which would you like to go first? You can go first, Billy. I have two sides of Doctor Who, especially with trying to get people involved in it. The one side is it's a, crany, it's a crazy, zany-type adventure story, but you also have very dramatic episodes, even in the original series. So uh, with trying to get DJ involved, I showed him the Five Doctor special, which was kind of a brief overview of the series. And then I tried to show him more serious episodes. And I, I hate to say it, I can't name one off the top of my head that would be like the episode that I would show somebody. I know that um, the Matt Smith episodes, there's some very great episodes with what he did. Um, the one with Hitler being one of them, um, being a very dramatic episode. I think that's one of the ones I first showed him. Um, but it's always hard to try to get new people with Doctor Who because it is zany, it is a little over the top, and then they have those Van Gogh episodes. So trying to get people involved, it's always interesting. Do you want to get them involved with the zaniness or with the drama episode? Because it's all over the place with it. Well, the, I mean, the one thing I'll say, of course, the difference between now and then is... Um, is that in the old days, each story was made up of three, four, five, six, seven, whatever episodes. So you had cliffhangers, and that's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of cliffhangers. And and, and you don't get cliffhangers that often in new Doctor Who. You do occasionally. You sometimes have two-part stories. Um, but um, I think sometimes perhaps the way they might have been shown in America was that perhaps they were edited together as like movie length. So you may have lost some of the, the sort of punch of the of the cliffhanger um but for my own personal favorites i'll try not to do too many but um <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people i think who, who, are, who are fans are very fond of stories that they remember from when they were kids at least two of my favorites i never saw um i i just like them because they're really good stories but the other thing i should say about doctor who is that it's not just sci-fi um, it's horror, it's supernatural. I'm a big horror fan, so a lot of my favorite Doctor Whos are are more horror-based, and they did often take 
sort of things like Frankenstein or the thing from another world and do their own Doctor Who spin on them in the same way that Dark Shadows did very similar things with, with a lot of the classic horror stories. Um, but I mean, I think that's one of the, I mean, I, I like sci-fi, but I like sci-fi more when it's on Earth than I do spaceships. I mean, Doctor Who has both. But I think that's another reason I like this movie is because it's Earth-based, whereas the first one's um, planet-based. But anyway, anyway, the stories that I particularly like are one from 1973 called The Green Death, which is with the third Doctor, John Pertwee. That's sort of an environmental story. Uh, then there's a Tom Baker story called uh, The Seeds of Doom, which is from about 1975, and that is um, their version of like a thing from another world. Uh, the Image of the Fendal from a couple of years later, that's another horror one. Um, and then Destiny of the Daleks from 1979, that's not the most popular of the Dalek stories, but it's the, one of the first stories I ever saw, um, and I, so I have a fondness for that. And then um, there's a well, we haven't really talked about the Cybermen because they never made it to the movies, but they're one of the other big Doctor Who monsters. And Earthshock from 1982 with the Fifth Doctor, that's a very that's a very good story, but and quite scary. The first episode particularly. Um, and then you know things like Curse of Fenric with Sylvester McCoy, the last Doctor, well, the last of the original Doctors. But as far as new Who goes, my favourites are probably. Uh, um, one, uh, one, uh, one called Blink, uh, which is well introduces uh, well statues who can. Well, it's a long story. The but Weeping they, Angels. A, yeah, the Weeping Angels. The Weeping Angels, um, and, uh, who, who become quite a big part of the show. Um, and then uh, Midnight is a very interesting one. That's um, a standalone story. And, and the, the, I mean, the 50th anniversary story, I always get confused because around that time there were a lot of stories that were called like Time of the Doctor, Day of the Doctor. I can never remember which one is the 50th anniversary one, but that, that, was, a, that was a very good one. And, and more recently, Flux, which was um, uh, a Jodie Whittaker story, but that was, that was, that was very good because it, it, was, it was different stories, but they were very closely linked, more than just an arc. It was like a was it five or six episodes? It, it, they were very much linked with a cliffhanger at the end of each episode. So it was really back to um, Doctor Who uh, in, in the good old days, as far as I was concerned. But, uh, but sorry, yeah, so that was, that, those are some of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> so I will just say that um, the, among my most favorites, uh, and I'm sorry, these are going to be more of the you know the 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 continuation that happened with Christopher Eccleston Ford mm. because I didn't get to see any of Classic Who uh, any time close to when it originally premiered, but um, these are all things that I have shared with Toppy at the um, the the uh, I'm forgetting what we called it uh, our theater here in the house, but anyways, they all involved. River Song, because I know from experience that Toppy has expressed interest or his enjoyment of mystery stories. And I myself, before I became a full-blown sci-fi nerd, dabbled in the realm of mysteries as well as romance. And, of course, 
the entrance of the character of River Song is just the culmination of romance and mystery together. So I feel that to a new fan, the best exposure that they could have to modern Doctor Who is the storylines that involve River Song because she just happens to become involved with the stories she is in hindsight she is a companion she happens to hitchhike aboard the time machine and she has her own story now i will leave it up to you to find out how she's connected and you know where that story is but it was it was very engineered they decided we're going to see how fans pay attention we're going to pepper her in but her life, as we see it, is actually in reverse. So my favorite episode of all time that I show to any new fan is Matt Smith, Let's Kill Hitler, because it has some of the greatest lines in modern who you go back into time during World War II, and they have an opportunity to change history but of course as we all know you have to be careful not to change history too much because certain tragedies have to happen in order for things to be in a rightful order and we get to see river song as a younger person learn more of her backstory but the other brilliant thing that you get to experience is a person who eventually becomes romantically involved with the doctor, meets him at a time where they don't realize that they're smitten and they are bent on eliminating him. They are a sleeper agent and basically told, this is a very bad man and you have to get rid of him. But then when the moment happens that he's about to die, it's revealed, no, You love him very deeply and you care for him and he is a good person. And there's this beautiful moment where the sleeper agent character that is River Song realizes that there's been a terrible mistake and decisions are made to save the day. And that's what I showed Toppy amongst a couple of other episodes, which include one of the best specials of all time, uh, a, a, a longly awaited appearance of River Song with Peter Capaldi. And because of them being closer in age, to me, the chemistry was just magical. The husbands of River Song. So I will, uh, draw my conclusion there well before we go on and uh, let the folks know what's coming up next um please sir mr Shaw, uh, mr paul there if you could let our listeners know where they might find you in the wide world of the potosphere well i'm mainly on the charlotte podcast that's my show um and um i guess i've done nearly 650 episodes in and i've just we just had our seventh anniversary but um, I, I also appear on a show called Round the Archives occasionally, a, sh- a show called Vision Vision on Sound, which is, well, both those are old TV podcasts, and I occasionally pop in on the Smellcast as well, mm-hmm. and Big Fatty Online, but uh, mm-hmm. um, but yes, I, 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 anyone will have me, I'm happy to, mm-hmm. but the Shy Life podcast is my main show, and 
Um, yeah. I ha- I hear a rumor that he has his own TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> and of course hubby billy can be found on my instagram uh just look for dj star sage <laughs> so toppy um if you'll do us the honors we're going to find out what's coming up next and uh this will be our mid-june episode this is going to be our first june episode the next one will be airing alive on June 16th. So All right, uh, let me open up this here crazy capsule. Uh, next time on Met Name Minutia, June 16th at our regular time live at 9 p.m. It's going to be a mid to late 90s drama mystery. With a little bit of a sci-fi theme, it stars former 70s child actor in a film by the director of Back to the Future franchise. Uh, Dr. Ellie Arroway, after years of searching, finds conclusive radio proof of extraterrestrial intelligence, sending plans for a mysterious machine to Earth. And if that sounds like the novel by Dr. Carl Sagan, you're right. Next time on Matinee Minutia, contact with Jody Foster and John Hurt and lots of other people. Yeah. John, John, John Hurt is Dr. Hurt as well. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to matinemenutia.com, click the YouTube icon for live video, enter Discord or chat. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit our webpage at matinemenutia.com. Tweet us on Twitter at matinemenutia. Find our group on Facebook. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com.